The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook if you sign up for a two-week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk slash audible. Hello, I'm Felicity Lawrence, and in this week's Focus podcast, we'll be discussing food security. After record temperatures this summer, wildfires spread across Russia, leading the Russian government to impose a ban on exports of wheat to protect its own food supplies. The global impact was immediate. In September, Mozambique erupted with a series of food riots, provoked by sudden hikes in the price of bread. At least 14 people died and hundreds were injured. Back in 2007-2008, similar rises in the cost of staple food set off riots all around the world, and some worry that we could soon be facing another crisis on that scale. Last Friday, Russia extended its export ban on wheat, and on Tuesday, alarm bells went off in the main agricultural commodities markets at the Chicago Board of Trade, when the US government predicted the worst winter wheat crop since at least 1995. With nearly a billion people around the world already going hungry each day, and dozens of countries facing food shortages in the near future, food security has become a really urgent issue. This is Jayati Ghosh, leading professor of economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Food security is really just being sure that you'll be able to get enough food to have a decent life at all times and independent of who you are, where you live, which kind of social group you belong to. So food insecurity is just the absence of any of those things. Food insecurity is one of the things that has actually got worse in the world, not better. When we look at the MDGs and we pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, well, MDG 1, reducing extreme poverty, we're on track, that's completely wrong because part of it is actually reducing hunger. And we have not reduced hunger. We have made it worse. If you look at the period between the early 90s and the mid-2000s, you find that there were more hungry people in the world, and most of them were either in South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. What's happened since then is that food prices have gone up massively for most of the developing world, and say in South Asia, food prices have gone up by an average of 70% since then, which really means that the problem is much, much worse. We have made a whole lot of farming unviable especially in relatively poor developing countries. We decided to go in for opening up the economy, opening trade in agriculture, reducing tariff barriers, exposing ourselves to highly subsidized production in the Western countries, while the developing countries themselves were reducing state protection. So we stopped state investment in agricultural research and extension. We didn't provide adequate marketing support. We didn't provide inputs. We didn't encourage new sustainable ways of farming. And then we said, well, now go out and compete with all these you know, big multinationals that are peddling cheap grain. So obviously, farmers faced rising inputs, very, very volatile crop prices, and farming has just become unviable. Jayati Ghosh there. And joining me in the studio is Duncan Green. Oxfam GB's head of research and author of the book From Poverty to Power. Duncan, was Mozambique just the beginning? Should we be bracing ourselves for another worldwide food crisis? I think what we've seen is a turnaround in the last 10 years, 15 years, where what was broadly a a picture of 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 things getting better has suddenly become a a real question mark. It looks like hunger could be on the increase 
It looks like uh, our failure to end hunger when it was very, uh, very possible is going to come back to haunt us. So what are the big causes today? Well, it's an overused cliche, but you've got a kind of perfect storm of factors all driving up prices and making prices more volatile. You've got uh, more and more land being used to grow feed for cattle, uh, which is a much less efficient use of land than growing grains to consume. You've got, more, you've got increasing impacts of climate change. Oxfam is seeing seasons becoming more unreliable, more variable. The rains coming when you don't expect them, stopping when you do expect them, which makes life impossible for farmers. Rising population. So, so the population of the world is currently 6.5 billion. It's going to rise to about 9 billion by mid-century and then start falling, actually. So we're approaching a last hump of rapid population growth, which means more mouths to feed in a situation where many countries are getting wealthier and therefore people's expectations are rising and they're getting more and better food, which is to be celebrated, but that all puts more pressure on food production. So is it just a problem of production? I mean, the FAO this week put out a report saying that we need to produce one billion more tonnes a year of food by 2050. Would that actually, is, is, it, a, is it just that we're not producing enough? Is that on its own going to solve things? It's absolutely not a production problem. 30 years ago, Amartya Sen said, the reason why people go hungry is because of access and justice or injustice and bad distribution. So you've had this extraordinary situation where the number of calories of food produced per capita has been rising for decades until this recent hiccup. And yet one in seven of the world's population go to bed hungry. So it's an extraordinary piece of historical negligence. So if you think of a a global system which produces a billion hungry people and a billion obese and overweight people, something is clearly broken with the food system. So there's a massive uh, part of the, of the puzzle there, which is why is the distribution so difficult? Why is, why is it so hard to get food to the people who need it? But on top of that, you've now got an overlay of new issues like climate change, which are actually going to make production very difficult. And what I think worries me and worries Oxfam is the way that the system responds to growing the food you need could either make life easier for poor people or make life much harder for poor people. And that's why we're going to focus on this for the next few years. One of the things you have to realise when we talk about food security and food insecurity is that one in seven of the world's people, a billion people, are already food insecure. They do not have secure access to food, even though the world produces enough. That is uh, something which is no one should be happy or, or accept. Well, it also sounds rather remote, doesn't it, these terms that we've started to use, food insecure or secure. It actually is being extremely hungry and anxious and not knowing how you're going to feed your family. That's right. It's the hunger and the anxiety. So it's been going to bed hungry. It's actually trying to get your kids to sleep when they're crying because they're hungry. That's, that's what food insecurity means. But it also means, I don't know how I'm going to feed them tomorrow or the day after. I don't know what, what tomorrow is going to bring. I think people in the UK in particular have, have forgotten that the real anxiety when there's nothing there to help you when you're at the mercy of events. And it's that that sensation of vulnerability which actually characterises poverty more than whether you've got a dollar a day or a dollar fifty a day. Duncan, I want to turn to the underlying economics. How much of the problem is to do with how international trade and markets work? A sizable portion. I'd say I wouldn't want to overstate the importance of the international system. There are domestic factors, there's the role of governments, there's the role of domestic inequality within developing countries, but laid across that there is an international system which has totally failed to deliver. So you've got a, an international system where rich countries subsidise farmers, they then dump produce and undermine domestic agriculture in, in poor countries. You've got a, a system where the vast 
majority of the benefits of any particular item go to the points higher up the value chain, the companies, the retailers. I was in Ethiopia last month talking to women who earn 20 cents a day sorting coffee. That means they have to work for eight years to earn what I earn in a day. An extraordinary global level of inequality. And that's because very little of the benefits of the coffee chain accrue to the people who are actually picking it. So you've got a a system where these value chains are really unfair. You've got a long-term neglect of agriculture. So agriculture was seen as old-fashioned. Aid agencies didn't want to invest in agriculture. Governments didn't want to invest in agriculture. Everybody wanted to be in new and sort of exciting areas like um, information technology and so on. And the nuts and bolts of making agriculture work were neglected. Now, what we're learning now as we actually look back at history is that the countries that are now successful began by investing in agriculture. It's a springboard to development. And unless you invest in agriculture, particularly small-scale farmers, small farmers with a few acres of land, that's how Vietnam took off. That's how a number of the what are now seen as miracle economies took off. And it's an essential part of development. You can't just skip to the next stage. That's a very good explanation of the, you know, this problem. It's not just about production, it's about distribution. You've got big agribusiness taking the lion's share of the money that's made from food and not enough staying where it's produced. But there are other factors that have come into play recently, haven't there? Can you tell me a bit about the policies that have led to more food for export and foreign investors moving in to buy up land for various things, whether it's biofuels or food for their own economies. How much of an impact is that having? Yeah, so these are very contested issues, as they say in social sciences, i.e. people argue about them a lot. So over the last 20, 30 years, many countries have moved into what they call export-led growth. So what they've done is said, okay, we're going to be like Korea or Taiwan. We're going to export our way to development. And the thing we've got to export is crops or agricultural produce. Some people think that that takes away from the ability to produce food. So if you're growing cotton to export rather than maize to eat, that's a bad thing that undermines your food security. I don't actually think that necessarily holds. It depends how much you earn for your cotton. So again, in Ethiopia, I saw uh, I went to a farm which is growing roses for the Dutch to buy, and it was a Dutch company. And that farm produces 12,500 jobs on that single farm uh, at twice the minimum wage. Now, that's still very little in Ethiopia, but it's more than people were earning before. So I think in that situation, I would argue that exports can be part of the development uh, equation. They're not necessarily a bad thing, but they are only part. And most markets that matter for poor people are still their domestic markets. So you've got to get this balance between creating jobs and exports and building domestic markets. Now, this isn't helped by the way that the international trade rules work, which is that trade rules have been negotiated over many years, and negotiations usually end up reflecting the power of the players in the negotiations. So surprise, surprise, trade rules tend to allow all the tricks that the rich countries use and disallow the kind of tricks that poor countries use. So, for example, trade rules tend to be more permissive on subsidies which is something that rich countries can afford, but much less willing to allow countries to use, say, taxes at the border to defend their farmers, which is something poor countries do. So you've got a kind of unfair, we called it rigged rules and double standards a few years ago when we did a big trade campaign. These rigged rules and double standards are actually stacked against poor countries and in some cases prevent them getting on the ladder. Those are some of the long-term causes of the food crisis, but there are some new factors that have intensified it that have attracted a lot of attention in recent weeks. What 
That wasn't a food riot. That was speculators on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade dealing in food. This week, the Well Development Movement organised a big discussion on food speculation here in London because a new kind of dealing in agricultural commodities has been causing a lot of alarm. We spoke to Olivia de Schutter, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to food about this new threat. Essentially, what we are seeing is this. We have in agricultural commodities two markets which until recently were working together. There is the physical market, the spot market, where tons of rice, wheat, corn are being exchanged. And we have the market for derivatives, where people trade the right to sell, the right to buy, within three, six months, for example, the futures markets. Until recently, these two markets were functioning together. The futures markets were a way to hedge against risk, and they were also a way to discover the prices that the producers and the buyers on the physical markets should use. However, since 2005-2006, the futures markets for derivatives has been completely destabilized by the arrival on these markets of commodity index funds, and huge financial investors, pension funds, hedge funds of different kinds, which have destabilized these markets by making investments not based on their expectations of supply and demand, but based on a purely financial gamble. Their investment is completely unrelated to any real expectation about the evolution of the price of commodities. And so what this leads to is traders will stock the food instead of selling it, buyers will buy as soon as possible, states will impose export bans uh, because they fear that prices will continue to increase. That requires us to regulate uh, speculation on those commodities because it is extremely problematic both for producers and for poor importing countries to have to play with such volatile prices. Olivia de Schutter there. Duncan Green, do you agree? Can we blame the world food crisis in 2007-2008 on food speculation? Not on speculation alone. I don't think de Schutter would claim that either. I, I was a sceptic and I think I'm coming round to this argument because of the, th- the stuff that people like World Development Movement have been putting out. I think it's increasingly clear that this is yet another example of the financial tail wagging the dog of the real economy. We've seen it in so many other areas. The volume of finance is now so big, the finance crossing the borders every day is 100 times bigger than the real trade uh, crossing borders, that even a slight uh, shiver in the financial markets has the power to really disrupt the real markets of goods and services on which poor people depend. So I think we're, we are seeing something like that going on with food speculation, and it's going to have to be analysed and understood better, there are still large international organisations who question the Schutter's analysis and say, actually, no, markets are still clearing, therefore there can't be any speculation. If there was speculation, then the markets wouldn't clear and you'd have build-ups of stocks. It's, a, it's an argument between economists, exactly. Like but yeah, Oxfam's commissioning some research on this because this is a really important question and we need to be sure of our answer. And at the moment, we're thinking there's something there, but we need to look much closer. Just explain, because it's sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people, when prices rise, why is that bad for poor farmers? Surely if they're selling their food, rising prices is good for farmers. Yeah, rising prices can be good for farmers, especially if they're, if they're steady. I think one of the things that the, the, the recent sort of chaos has shown is that the one thing that's worse than low steady prices is erratic prices, where, which go up and down all the time. So that leads to an impossibility for farmers to know what to plant, how much credit to take out, if they can get credit, all these kind of business decisions. 
you've got a situation where you know, three quarters of the, of the hungry people in the world are actually living in the countryside. Often most of them actually have land, but they can't grow enough on that land to feed themselves. And that's partly because uh, in many cases they are on very small farms, but also it's because they get so little support. They can't get loans from the banks. They can't get fertilizers and, and pesticides and so on at a decent price. They don't get the technical support they used to get from government in the 80s and in the 70s and 80s. So they're kind of abandoned. So, and they're not actually engaged in the market. They're actually just producing enough themselves. Well, often they sell a little bit when they get the harvest, but that's precisely when the prices are lowest because they don't have storage facilities, so they can't put it aside for pro- and wait till prices go up. And then between harvests, you have this thing called yeah, hunger seasons, they're known as, the season just before the harvest, when the food has run out, the money's run out, and people go very hungry. So you have this seasonal quality to hunger, as well as this long-term impact of hunger. We heard a lot about two other factors in the last world food crisis, biofuels and so-called transition diets, the switch to more meat and so on. What's the story with those two? Well, they're both real factors. They're they're longer-term, well, medium-term factors. So biofuels, what you've got is the richer countries getting very anxious about energy security. They don't want to depend, say, on Russia because Russia has proved itself slightly erratic in terms of supplies, and they're worried about depending on the Middle East because of previous volatility. So they're saying, okay, we can actually make petrol, gas, if you're American, out of corn, maize. And you can. That improves your energy security, but at the expense of grain for other other purposes and land for other purposes. So this is a new use of land which competes with producing land for food. And is that still going on? Oh, yes, absolutely. No, a large percentage of the U.S. maize crop is used for biofuels. And is the same in Europe, or did Europe back off? No, Europe's also got a long-term commitment to increasing the percentage of biofuels in its energy mix in transport. Now, the point is this is often disguised as a climate change measure. But actually, it's much more about energy security than about climate change. Biofuels from maize, for example, are often produce more carbon dioxide than, than petrol does. And transition diets. Last time, India and China took a lot of flack for eating more meat or wanting to switch to Western diets. How much of a factor is that? Some people dispute whether it was a factor at all. I think it's a factor. Um, it's, it's hardly a factor we can uh, oppose. This is, this is a result of success. This is a result of poor countries becoming less poor and people choosing to eat different things. The science is that for a kilogram of, of red meat takes six times as much land as a kilogram of grains. And I think there's going to be increasingly an awareness that when we choose to eat red meat we are having an impact on the environment and on food security globally. And it's going to be an interesting and difficult consumer question over the next few years to what extent uh, red meat should make us feel guilty, I suppose. What you get very clearly from your points and the, and the points made by Jayati Ghosh and Olivia de Souter is the sense that food security is such a, an interlinked global issue. Is there much that individual countries can do to tackle it on their own, to protect their own population and its food needs? Absolutely. I mean, what you've got, let's take poor countries first and then rich countries. I mean, that's a very crude division, but there's lots of countries in the middle increasingly. If you look at what poor countries can do, they can follow the examples of success. There are many examples which have been successful, not always the obvious ones. Burkina Faso has actually improved its agricultural output at the same rate as Vietnam, even though it's hardly ever held up. Uh, as a success story. And and one of the reasons is it's actually sorted out its water issues. It's actually become much better at conserving water, at using water for agriculture and not wasting it. Uh, And it's invested in agriculture. So countries where the government and the state has invested in agriculture and countries where small producers, small farmers have got organised 
uh, and actually can then get a better deal for their crops. If you put those two things together, you can actually get success at a, at a national level. If you look at rich countries, there's a number of things to do in terms of our consumption, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but also in terms of how we give aid, of the kind of trade rules and investment rules we negotiate. There has to be a kind of sense of moving to an age of responsibility on food where we accept that this it should never have got to this. We should not have had one in seven going hungry when there's enough food. And we have to work together to make sure that that situation doesn't get worse. Oxfam puts quite a lot of its efforts into empowering small-scale farmers in some of the poorest countries. Can you tell me a little bit about what difference you think that makes to food security and what you do? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is is when we say small-scale farmers, we often mean women. So you've got a a preponderance of uh, women farmers both producing food in developing countries, but also processing food, worrying about food. Food is more of a female issue than a male issue in many countries. So you've got a gender angle on this whole question. And what we do when we're working with small-scale farmers is try and give them what we call power in markets. It's a bit of a jargon, but it means if you've got a couple of bags of something and you're trying to sell it, then the trader comes past the farm with his pickup truck and says, OK, I'll give you this for it, and you take what you can get. If you've got 100 of you coming together and having 200 bags, then you can hire the truck, you can go to the market, and you get a better price, and you can actually bargain. So what a lot of what we do is actually trying to get more of a collective sense of, of operation. Then the other aspect is actually lobbying the government to listen to small farmers and not just big ones. So there's a whole area of, of what we call advocacy, where you're actually trying to help farmers actually lobby the government and get decent deals. So in Colombia, for example, we, help, we worked with small farmers to persuade Bogota, the capital city, to feed its schools and hospitals using produce from small farmers, and they agreed to do that. So that's that's transformed the situation for small farmers in that part of Colombia. So we've heard from Duncan Green there some of the things that might help actually alleviate food insecurity in poorest countries. Raj Patel, award-winning author of The Value of Nothing, is fellow at the Institute for Food and Development Policy, known as Food First. I asked him what he thought we needed to do to move towards a more sustainable food and farming system. The way we value the world, having surrendered the right to value things to the so-called free market, it has been really to abdicate responsibility for for valuation to corporations and to capitalism. As a result, a number of things never feature in the price, whether it's environmental cost, whether it's costs shunted into the future for for our children, or perhaps the greatest uh, hidden cost, the, the cost to people engaged in in care work, whether that's raising children or bringing up communities or or, or maintaining society in one way or another, the the work that's usually done by women, particularly in developing countries. None of that features in the way that we eat today. And there are other ways of producing food in which those costs are recognized and are valued. But that means shifting away from profit-driven markets and thinking a lot more about how it is that we internalize the costs of the way we live today and matching our political and our ecological community. So if you were reinventing the global food system, what would it look like? I'm excited about a a report that came out a couple of years ago that looks precisely at what happens in 2050 when we have 9 billion people. In the future, most of the 9 billion in 2050 will live in cities. So we'll need urban and peri-urban farming. We'll need ways of managing land and resources in cities in order to be able to access and distribute food uh, regionally and sustainably. The way we will grow on that land won't be through fossil fuel subsidized agriculture, but will be through things like uh, agroecological farming, permaculture, biodynamic farming, ways of farming that are about building complex ecosystems 
that sort of maintain things like soil fertility and robustness against insect and weeds that, that are sort of portfolios of crops that, that help us manage things like climate change. By hedging your bets, by having a polyculture rather than a monoculture, you get to, to, to have a, a diverse farming system so that you're ensured that something is produced rather than betting the farm literally on one crop that, that, that may or may not be successful as a result of sort of weird things in climate. But it's, it's also about the way that you engage in distribution, which is, you know, brings us back to the beginning of the conversation. We need a lot more local democracy you know, to manage these resources, to be able to make sure that no one in, in a community is going hungry. And already you're seeing the sort of prototypes for what that kind of social system would look like around the world with things like food policy councils, with things like food banks that want to put themselves out of business. There are institutions and there are sort of spaces that involve the state, that involve the private sector, that involve community groups that are about turning food away from a commodity into a right. That kind of politics accompanying a kind of farming system that, that does internalize the cost, well, that's the kind of future that, that not only I, I would like to sort of click my fingers for us to live in, but I think the scientific consensus suggests that we will need, if we are to ensure both that the food gets grown and that it gets distributed equitably. We'll pick up on what Raj Patel said just there in a minute. But first, let's go back to Jayati Ghosh. The first thing that has to be done by developing countries is to focus once more on ensuring that agriculture is viable. So we have to actually make cultivation something that is feasible, that is sustainable ecologically, and that provides a reasonable income to the cultivators. That means a lot of government intervention. It means once more that governments encourage public investment in research and extension, that we generate new knowledge that the farmers need and give farmers that knowledge, that we make uh, access to inputs secure and reliable, that we somehow provide some degree of stability in output prices, either through sort of minimum support price policies for important food items or something like a market stabilization scheme for oil seeds and prices that fluctuate very wildly. This is not just a problem of the developing world. It is something which the northern countries have a crucial role to play. The first necessary condition is regulation of financial activity in commodity markets because if it doesn't occur there, it doesn't matter what developing countries do. The prices will continue to be volatile. But in addition, the developed world needs to ensure that it provides access to new technologies that it has been developing in terms of sustainable cultivation, that it does not insist on trade uh, liberalization that actually damages the viability of farmers in developing countries. Third, they have to actually change the nature of their own subsidies and get rid of the export subsidies that are artificially cheapening a whole range of agricultural commodities and allowing them to be very volatile in international markets. Fourth, they have to encourage the holding of international grain reserves, which can stabilize commodities when there's a sudden shortfall. So lots there from both Raj Patel and Jayati Ghosh about market interventions and regulation to control food speculation. But Amartya Sen famously said that no famine's ever taken place in a democracy. Duncan Green, is achieving food security fundamentally actually an issue of governance? I think it's fundamentally an issue of, of power and politics. I'm never quite sure what the word governance means, I'm afraid. I think it's government with the politics taken out half the time, which isn't very useful. So it is an issue of who gets what, and it will remain an issue of who gets what, and that always involves power and politics and struggle. So uh, Raj Patel's right that the, you know, the politics at national level, the spread of accountable governments, uh, Amartya Sen's original point about democracy, all these things are going to be absolutely crucial. But I also think Jayati Ghosh is right in that there is an international component to this about the, about the rich countries doing no harm 
and hopefully even doing some good in terms of how they interact with developing countries. The piece I think Joy didn't mention, which is absolutely fundamental to this over any length of time, is sorting out climate change. There's been this drift since Copenhagen, which is just truly alarming. Unless we get global emissions to turn round by in the next four or five years, you are going to look at a situation where the, the hardest hit part of the world will be the tropical belt, which is precisely where the poorest people live. So they will pay the price for a problem we have created. So you've, on top of all the other debates on food, you've got this massive issue of climate change. And that's all for this week's Focus podcast. Many thanks to my studio guest, Duncan Green. The producers were Ian Chambers and Peter Sale. Research was by Claire Provost. And I'm Felicity Lawrence. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook. Head to guardian.co.uk slash audible. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.